Welcome to Between Data and Risk podcast. Today we'll talk about problem-focused startup development and digitalization of agro-industry with our guest, Alan Gray, Head of Digital Innovation and Agri-Food Systems Lab at Purdue Applied Research Institute and Executive Director at Purdue Dial Ventures. Stay tuned. If you're a business owner or senior manager, you probably had more than enough about all the wonderful opportunities awaiting you in the era of digitalization. Whether it is big data, cloud, data science, or whatever buzzword is currently trendy. If you would like to hear someone dissecting these claims and showing you what it actually takes to improve business processes, you're in the right place. This is Between Data and Risk, where we discuss real life examples of what works and what doesn't in the world of business operations. Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and with me is my co-host, Artur Guja, Cognition Shared Solutions Chief Risk and Strategy Officer. Hello. Welcome to this episode of Between Data and Risk. Today, we'll take a look at innovation in the agri-food industry. We have with us Alan Gray, Head of Digital Innovation at Agri-Food Systems Labs at Purdue Applied Research Institute and Executive Director at Purdue Dial Ventures, who agreed to share some of his experiences with us. Hello, Alan. Hi, good to see you both. Yes, uh, we are really excited to have you with us. Uh, we know that uh, you run Dial Ventures, uh, but before we, we will um, dig into it, I think we should start explaining our uh, audience uh, what's specific about innovation in, in agri-food industry. Like, does it need innovation and in what, what capacity? Like, we all use agri-food industry if we eat, and I believe most of our listeners do from time to time. So what's the business side of the... Of the you know? Yeah, really good, re- really good question to start with. I think, um, you know, the thing that I think about the agri-food industry, of course, w- w- uh, a lot of what I will say here is based on my experiences r- relative to, say, North American and South American agriculture and food, where I have most of my expertise, some in Europe. Uh, the developing world will will, will see a bit different uh, frame of reference for that. We might address some of that as we move forward here. But, but what I would tell you is that, um, uh, first and foremost, I think that it's important for our audiences to understand that uh, agriculture, uh, the food and agricultural industry is probably the best kept secret with respect to the world's first and most successful sustainable industry. We are really quite good uh, at uh, producing the world's food right. using the limited set of resources, right? And right. over the last 50 years, we have gone from one farmer can feed roughly 40 people the one farmer now feeds 140 people. While we've done that, we've also reduced the amount of inputs that we use in the process of doing that. That's the very definition of sustainability. It's the greatest sustainability story in the history of the world, in my judgment. So when I say that, uh, you asked, Marion, does agriculture need innovation? Well, I want to start by telling you that it's actually a way more innovative industry than most people give it credit for. It's actually quite innovative on its own. So why do you need a Dow Ventures if you already have an industry that's already quite innovative, right? Uh, in the United States, we're very fortunate. 
uh, that, uh, uh, you know, food as an expenditure for the uh, average person in our population is less than 10%, right? That's pretty amazing. It's not the same way everywhere else in the world. Certainly Europe uh, enjoys something similar with respect to cost. And in other parts of the world, the, the costs are still higher, but it's not the cost of the food. It's actually the income levels not being as high. That's really the, 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 the differentiator. Cost of food is continually uh, coming down overall. Inflation in the last few years, notwithstanding, we've seen a little bit of an increase in food. But if you look at it over a long period of time, clearly food costs have come way down. So this is what I, tell, yeah. I say to folks when they ask me about innovation in agriculture. So we're very innovative. We're very good. But we're a very physical industry. What do I mean by that? You take raw, physical raw materials, and we turn them into alternative physical raw materials that humans can utilize food fiber fuel primarily right those are and we're very good innovative in physical side of things but where are we lagging so dramatically is digitally we have the worst digital footprint in the united states for example we're ranked 22nd out of 22 industries with respect to our digital footprint of agriculture 22nd out of 22 how is uh, how is it measured? How how is this digital? Because uh, to my understanding, when you know uh, your job is to I don't know get on the tractor and plow the field, your digital footprint might be low, and you can still do your job well. So how, how is it measured, and why you know is it comparable? I don't know to fintech. Yeah, that's a good question, and and the answer would be yes and no. It's com- it is compared in the 22 to 20, 22 out of 22 compared to fintech, uh, where 22nd out of 22 and fintech would be number one because it's mm-hmm. purely digital, right? Mm-hmm. But where, where, where do we think about digital? Our ability to share data and information across the system, we're abysmal at it. Our ability to use data and information to optimize processes, we're abysmal at it, right? Uh, our ability to, to uh, visualize uh, activities as they're occurring. We're, uh, for example, animal behaviors. We're getting better, mm-hmm. but we're far behind in our ability to do all, all of the things that you would consider to be digital frameworks uh, we're far behind on. Now, now, the question really should be, why are we so far behind? And the answer, I believe, lies in this very thing. I can run a tractor just fine without it Re- reasonably well. And so at an individual level, I'm not sure I need that much digital. What I need is to take physical stuff and turn it into better physical stuff and hopefully uh, feed more people and be more profitable than I was the year before, right? More productive and more profitable than I was the year before. So at an individual level, it becomes harder to think about digital because it's not core to what you do, which is exactly what you were suggesting, Marion, was that, I mean, I can drive a tractor without this. Exactly. It's, It's not core. Uh, what I find in any industry you look at is if it's not the core of what you do, you're actually probably not very good at innovating. And, and digital is not the core of agriculture. So our innovate, our ability to innovate in the digital side has just been mm-hmm. not good, not not because it's not core. Does that make sense? That's that's yeah. the reason why. Yeah, I think- it absolutely makes sense. But you know, I'm I'm trying to to, to see the conversation uh, as you mentioned. You cannot. I don't know, share the, the, the results between regions uh, or between systems. 
the question is, what are the benefits that are, let's say, not there because of, of this, of this uh, yep. Yep. delay in, in, in innovation and implementation? Yeah, so I think there, uh, go ahead, uh, it could take us all day, I suppose, to answer all the questions of what's <laughs> missing because we can't do that uh, is a big, big question, really. But let me give you some big picture uh, areas where I think we're missing. So mm -hmm. trust in the food system is really lacking. Why is trust in the food system lacking? That's a digital footprint, right? That's ability to share across the system what's happening to, to the land, what's happening to the food, what's happening to the processing, what's happening to, mm -hmm. is, is it in, is, is uh, fresh produce being produced, being shipped in containers that air conditioners break on and it's at bad temperatures during certain times, of the, right? But we, we don't know that. It, it, you can't track or trace that. That truck, so, driver, so supply, that truck so, driver knows so, if he was broken so, down, but nobody else does, right? It's yeah tracking the, the the supply chain or or is this more about the quality of the food it's about tracking the supply chain so that i understand what's happening to the quality of the food mm -hmm. yeah it's both right it's both of those things so that's an area where boy if we could do a better job digitally we'd create more trust in the food system amongst our consumers and now the misinformation that may have people buying foods for reasons that aren't really true, but make them feel better about it for whatever reason uh, that, that they're buying, uh, maybe we can shift that. And, and, and it looks better for the overall business. They're doing a better job of creating trust, and there's more opportunity for, for you to be able to do that. So that's one area. It's the trust area. The second area is the sub-optimization that occurs in the system. If all you know is what happens within your firm, I can optimize my firm, but that might not be optimal across the system because there, there, there could be a global optimum that even includes for me a higher level optimization for my own firm, but because the firm uh, after me or the firm before me doesn't optimize at the same, it only does a local optimization, we can't both get to the global optimization, right? And we believe that happens in a number of different places. For example, in the cattle industry in the United States, beef. Right. There is zero connection right now between the quality of the beef that is being sold at a white tablecloth restaurant and mm -hmm. the cow that was used to raise that beef. There's zero connection between the two. If you have the digital connection between the two and the information is being shared between the quality at the restaurant table and the genetics that are happening in the beef in the back, what could mm -hmm. you do to optimize the overall system so that the consumer is happier, they're, they're getting better quality, and the producer is happier because they're producing a better quality product that's getting a higher price for what they're delivering. Right now, that information system is just not, just doesn't I'm, fit. I'm really curious because it's like, you know, they say that you know the 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 the, mm, the tide raises all the sheep. Uh, can you give us the example of let's say we have farms one two three? You know you're driving, you're passing the first one, the second one, the third one. Uh, when these sub sub optimal solutions interfere with each other, I from my perspective, I'm I, I'm not an expert as you probably noticed. Uh, like, okay, somebody's doing something to his field, and as long as he's not using, I don't know, some terrible chemicals which flow with the underground water to, to other fields, uh, they are pretty disconnected. Can you give us an example? Like, because I, I love the interconnected systems. That's my passion. So if you would explain to us, 
on the example how how these can connect, it would be absolutely interesting to me. Yeah, so I, I think it's an interesting question in the sense that if we so we want to think about connections, uh, about whether we're talking about horizontal connections or vertical mm -hmm. connections, right? Mm -hmm. Most often, I tend to think about the vertical connections of, okay, what can yeah. I do with the food that I produce on the land that I have? And where does that go next in the channel? Does it go directly to the mm -hmm. consumer? Does it go through a handler, right? So so I, I like to think about that vertical piece, but it's an interesting thing to think about what could happen if you had more connectivity across the horizontal piece of it. So if you'll allow me, I'll try to address both of those. Let me start with the Absolutely. With, with the vertical set of the optimization. So a lot of people think today, well, the best way to do agriculture value added and trust with the consumer and all that is direct to the consumer. It should go from the farm directly to the consumer. That's a grand idea. Uh, it's not a very smart Doable. one. <laughs> it's, it's not a very smart one, but it's a grand idea. Why, why is it not a very smart one? You, because, uh, because you have to aggregate uh, a, enough quantity to make the system efficient enough so that the food is not so expensive. I can raise tomatoes, and I do a great job of raising tomatoes in my garden behind my house. Those tomatoes cost me about $3.50 a tomato. <laughs> and I can buy them in the grocery store for 35 cents, right? I'm not efficient and effective at doing it. So you need this aggregation that has to happen across the value chain if you're going to feed billions of people. Farmers markets are great. I have no problem with farmers markets. I love the idea. I buy from farmers markets. No, you're not feeding the world from farmers markets. It's just not, it's just not practical, right? So, so you need these vertical connections to make the market system work to effectively feed people. And the more that we can connect the data then between the various parties within that vertical system, the more efficient and effective we'll be available to. Now, but let's we, talk about this had, horizontal had, side. Oh, sorry, I, go I, ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to drop an example. We, it's one of the business cases that we show to people. Uh, we actually helped with vertical integration of the um, pet food uh, company. Uh, they were actually making pet food from uh, from some kangaroo uh, meat, and we understand how much more efficient it is when you have control visibility and uh, interconnectedness of the of the processes. Uh, so we we can confirm from let's say our limited experience uh, that it really works great if you can vertically integrate. Uh, Arthur, you, you seem like you uh, have a question. Uh, yes, uh, I've been, I've been, I've been waiting for the opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm just, just wondering because there's, uh, uh, we're, we're talking, uh, we've been talking for the, for the, for the last ten minutes or so about the, the needs for innovation, but it seems like this, this whole discussion is lacking from the, from, from the, the broader media space, right? There's a lot of talking about innovation in, uh, in computing, in robotics, in, in, in finance, but somehow the, 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 the kind of humble carrot in, in 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 a supermarket is not getting any attention from 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 innovation so is it is it because and i'm i'm, I'm i may be kind of dumbing down the population here although usually it's, it's it's very hard but is it because most people just simply assume that that food grows in tesco's and it magically happens to appear there and are most people are completely unaware of the whole complexity of what actually needs to happen for them to receive a, a salad or a hamburger? Uh, how how would we change this? Uh, what what needs to happen for people to actually be more more aware of the of of this complexity and this need for innovation here? Yeah, 
It's a good question. And one we've been talking a bit about uh, in Dow Ventures as well. Um, here's the interesting thing, Arthur. You're really correct in the sense that uh, the consumer is ignorant. And that's not negative, right? Ignorant means I don't know. It doesn't mean you're not capable of learning. It means you don't know. The other thing that we discover about consumers by and large is they also don't care. So if you don't know and you don't care, then then we're not going to educate you, right? And, and, and this has been a problem of our industry for a long time is if we just educate the consumer, it's not a very good marketing ploy, right? Because they, they're ignorant and they don't care. So the, by and large, a person goes to the grocery store, they're not interested in researching everything on the shelf before they buy it. Why? Because I'm trying to get into the grocery store, buy some groceries, get home, cook them and eat them not go in and research so that I find the latest. So, so when I talk about digitization and transparency, as we talk about it across the industry, it's not for the consumer per se, because they don't care until they do. So it's really more about our ability when they do decide they care. <coughs> we have the ability to say, here it is. You can see it when, when you decide you care. So, so what does that mean to me? It's not about the consumer. It's about the brands, right? It's about food brands. Hey, if I'm McDonald's, my brand is worth a ton of money. If that consumer decides they care, if I can't show them, here's how that broiler was raised that created that chicken nugget that's not very good for you, but since you want to know how it was raised, <laughs> I better be able to show it to you. <laughs> right? That, 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 that's, that's the point. And that's why, it become, well, that's why this is interesting to me, is because it does become a business activity. It become, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about the consumer, although I want healthier, cheaper, more affordable, more available food for everybody. And I think we can do that through digitization of this system that will also occur, but it's also a business proposition. It's like, look, your brand, you want trust with your consumers. Brands are what create trust if that brand is trustable. Well, my concern mm -hmm. is I better protect that trust because I, and so I need to know. And if I'm McDonald's and I'm sourcing, you know, billions of pounds of beef, how am I going to know what, where that came from and how does that, how that came through the system if it's all, paperwork oriented and it gets broken uh, uh, that chain gets broke that chain of information gets broken at various levels so we need to make sure that we put all that together so uh, so that's a long answer for you Arthur to say listen the uh, consumers ignorant and they don't care that's it's not about them it's ultimately about the brands and the ability of the food system to create trust amongst consumer writ large uh, you have you have uh, an uphill struggle here because actually you mentioned McDonald's and McDonald's did uh, um and ad campaign uh, here in UK some time ago uh, advertising that all their hamburgers sold in the UK actually from British beef and most of the public went yeah right uh, <laughs> and and they could prove it but if the public didn't care the public just didn't believe them but I'm I'm, I'm just wondering because you're you're talking a lot about uh, about trust but that's kind of innovation increasing digita digitization for uh, for 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 one purpose is, yep. Do I understand also correctly that innovation can be used to increase? You mentioned forty increase to hundred and forty people per farmer. Can Damn. innovation also help us increase this to I don't know three hundred and forty? Yeah, yeah. So let me give you if I could, if I could drop in here, I'm sorry, I'm I'm so sorry, but uh, the question is, is it is it really a topic? Uh, is, is it really about the innovation? Uh, 
it is about the scale. You are increasing the scale of things. So you have bigger tractor and one guy can, you know, drive it, uh, you know, to my understanding, especially in the US, uh, the sizes of farms are humongous, especially compared to Europe. So I guess there is some in, uh, innovation needed that this one guy on this tractor can actually, you know, go 200 miles one direction and then 200 miles the other. Uh, but is it innovation or is it just a different business model that uh, the huge farms, it's, uh, it reminds me, I, we, me and Arthur, we've both been raised in, in the socialist country, unfortunately, and there were this, this uh, country-owned uh, farms where they were, like, you know, collected. Uh, it's a similar thing done with money, not with, uh, not with uh, bayonets and, and carbines. Uh, but, but so, so is I, it per farmer or is it per hectare? I think what the, the, the data scientific. Yeah, that's be, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. That's my question. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and 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 um, so I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Scale matters for sure. Uh, production agri- production agriculture because of the nature of what it is, uh, and its resource base is so large. Uh, that mm-hmm. by definition, it's high fixed cost business. When it's mm-hmm. a fixed cost business, scale is what matters. And and, and mm-hmm. this has been a, a misnomer of the globe for a long time, right? It's one of the things that I have as a challenge. I don't want to go into this in too much detail, but the whole idea we got to save the smallholder farmer is just a terrible idea. Basically, all we're doing is saying, let's make sure we keep you in poverty for the rest of your life because you have a business model that will never work. But let's just make sure we give you enough money to keep you doing a business model that will never work. That doesn't make any sense. Just, but, just, but anyway, just, just, just to be, just, just to be clear, I'm not saying that one thing is better than the other. I'm just saying that there is a difference. And uh, as Artu said, what I try to say and spend too much time trying to explain is like this innovation per hectare uh, or, or, or uh, the yield per hectare is probably just a tiny bit better uh, because I understand you know if, to, when I learned how much the tractor that I you know speak about so often costs. Uh, that's when I got my gray hair, you know, uh, (laughs) (laughs) when, when I realized that the Lamborghini is not primarily the, the, the brand for sports car and the Lamborghini tractor is probably, probably more expensive than most of the sports cars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so so what happens though there is because there's so much of this fixed cost is scale, then it's a, it's not a, it's actually not a scale issue. It turns out to be a productivity issue. Mm-hmm. Right I, I, on the on the acres that I'm farming, how do I get as much out of that as I possibly can? Or on the uh, animal farm that I'm getting, how do I get as much productivity from that animal from the inputs that I'm using as I possibly can? And so, where you start to think about this, is I think agriculture by and large is really good at this. I think Europe is really good at it. I think the U.S. Is really good at it. And in that case, scale is totally different, but we're still really good at the productivity. How do we get the mm-hmm. best production out of the acres that we have? Mm-hmm. Okay. But but our population is still growing, so we still got to feed even more people, despite the fact that I think we're actually really quite good at that right now. So now to get even better at it, we're not talking about uh, one thing that we're going to do a uh, hundred times better, right? We're trying to find a hundred things that we're going to do one percent better. Okay, you're not doing that from physical, let me share my knowledge tribally with the next people. You're going to have to do that with data with analytics, with very precise ways in which you're trying to get 100 things to improve 1%. 
that's what you have to do in order to get to that productivity level of the future. So that's where digital comes into play with respect to saying it's going to drive productivity because it, it almost has to. We're not going to we don't get we don't have big boulders to turn over anymore in productivity. But our, it's all little tiny pebbles. And, and how do you find each how do you find enough of those? to get the real benefits you're gonna to need to feed nine and a half billion people when today mm-hmm. we're only feeding eight billion. I mean, that's a, a lot, but we got a billion and a half more or, or two billion more maybe, depending on which numbers you believe right. that we're gonna to have to feed. But well, we don't have one planet. Uh, we're not creating more land. So we're gonna to have to do something to be more effective and efficient in ways in which we do that. Then there's another piece of this puzzle where digital I think can play. And let me tell you a quick mm-hmm. story on this. In the United States, in the apple production region. Mm-hmm. It depends a bit on the year, both weather and markets, but by and large, 30 to 35% of the apples never get harvested. It is rot. It's rot. Labor was too expensive. The apple didn't meet the quality standards that, 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 the, that, the, that the system wants for the quality of that whole apple. And then the cost associated with then pulling that apple into a processing plant is too expensive, or more often than not, the markets don't recognize that there is, they don't recognize, wait, here's where the apples are oversupplied or falling off the tree, and there's a system for collecting those. Okay, mm-hmm. how do we create digital systems to allow that to market to be better clearing than it is? There's no, there's no reason 35% of the apples in the United States be sitting on the ground. We should feed people with them. Well, okay. How, how can we how can we do that? How can we create opportunities, marketplaces where those things begin to clear in a different way? The farmer gets some benefit from it because now there's a market to sell these apples that won't sell into their normal markets. But there's also now access for other companies to add value to a set of apples that that don't have as much value today coming off the tree. So that's another area where I think food waste right is a big problem. And, and digital can help us find markets and ways to get that food waste into the marketplace to allow us to feed more people than we currently are. And again, another solution then for how do we how do we feed to 10 billion people? So, uh, I can I can think of uh, kind of two, two more areas where, where food innovation probably uh, is, 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 is worth looking into. One, one of that is uh, that the decreasing of waste from actually what you call the, the the raw product into the the processed product because you probably can 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 extract more and the other one is is related to my area risk management and that's probably ensuring the safety of the food but can can you explain to us how uh, dial ventures actually helps uh, well if not solve then at least approach these problems uh, such that uh, at some point, uh, you know, because we, we are, we are, as you say, not getting more land, we are getting definitely more people. There's going to be uh, sustainability problems. Uh, so how do, how do you, how do you help uh, companies uh, approach this? Yeah. Um, so just a brief uh, overview of Dow Ventures. Dow Ventures is a, is a startup studio. That's what we do. We create startup companies to help digitize the ag and food system for the reasons that we just explained. So how do we help? We help by creating startup companies to do these sorts of things in various areas in the industry. But the most important part of what we do in a startup studio is that we start we start from the premise that we don't know the exact problem or the solution that we should create. 
What we know is that we have strong connections to the industry and we can bring talent and the industry knowledge together to co-create problem identification that leads to a set of solutions that can be uh, adopted, applied, and have an impact. That, 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 in a nutshell, that's what we ultimately are trying to do in our startup studio. Say, a uh, university is not going to sit here at a bench doing research and find the solution to a specific problem. We do that, but often what we do at the university level is so technical and and it's and it's just not ready for commercialization. So you don't see you, what you see happening at the university often is something that'll be adopted 10 years from now when somebody figures out how to get something that'll be commercializable out of it. We're trying to take a little bit different approach within our university studio and say, let's start from the industry. What are their challenges today? And how can we come up with solutions to help them in that digital world uh, create solutions for today? And Arthur, what I'd tell you is that some people will call us boring. Why? Because our <laughs> because the things the industry needs to be better at being digitized are not cutting edge technologies. We're taking common off the shelf tech stacks, putting them together in ways that people can adopt and utilize today just to get us to a level where physical is turning into digital data. If we don't, we have to solve that problem first, right? We're not going to create the next chat GPT for tomato production uh, tomorrow because we don't have the data to do that. It doesn't, that doesn't exist, right? A chat, a, 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 a AI needs a tremendous amount of library of data. We don't this have data, this, this data doesn't grow on trees, so to speak. No, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, actually, that's really funny. Does. Actually, I'm going to write that down because I might need to. I might need to use that because because here's the funny thing about it: it doesn't grow on trees yet. It does. It does grow on trees, but we don't know how to capture the data that's growing on that tree. That's the challenge. Yeah. Is we're still trying to figure out how do you capture the data that's growing on that apple tree. That's and that's what we really need to be able to do better than we can do today. The, the the funny thing is that what you what you described is actually you described our company as well. It's. Uh, it, it's something that we truly believe in is that you need to go into the into the client and see what is the what are the processes and how we can use data and risk uh, to 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 make them better uh, it's not about often clients ask us about silver bullets like oh do you have a technology that would just come here do poof and and the world will be you know fluffy and profitable and uh, no there is not it's hard yeah. work. So I, I, I'm, I think we both are, uh, are boring as well. So yeah, let's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a really in interesting story because we had one, one episode some time ago with a gentleman who was uh, uh, Mandar Joshi. He was uh, running the biggest, I think, uh, startup venture in, in, in India. And they were also working by connecting startups with businesses. So the idea uh, is tested before being fully developed. So if I can... They call it the integrated incubator. So, so, so the, the, the idea in, in India, it worked beautifully. They, they, they now moved to, to, to Dubai and they will be doing the similar thing. So, so, so we think that this is the only way that can help solve real problems. Maybe you won't have you know, I don't know, unicorns this year. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, we would love to hear more. Like, you know, 
uh, I don't know how often people people meet you because on the other hand you have these people who need to do this physical work to transform physical into physical and sitting and chatting around I guess it's not very you know best pastime so how how, how does it really work yeah it's good so um <clears throat> the way that we try to do it to, to, to the at the big picture level, first thing we try to do is that we're going to combine what we find is the three most important ingredients to create an advantage startup. Our job in the end is to create an advantage startup. What is an advantage startup? It's a startup that has a very clear understanding of the problem, a very clear line of sight to who its customers are, a very solid go-to-market plan, and an ability to start generating revenue quickly. Okay, And to, to do that, and so that it moves to an exit. All right. For us, our final measure of success is that we create a startup company that within five to seven years, it exits into the uh, ag and food industry by uh, strategic, usually buying them. Uh, perhaps they go public, but usually not. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to get companies to buy them uh, at the point where they're mature enough. Right. That, that's our measure of success is do we get to an exit? That's what we call an advantage startup. And they have an advantage of getting to an exit. It takes three pieces. Talent. Uh, so you got to de-risk the talent. You have to have a great idea. You have to de-risk the idea, and you have to have strategic capital. If you take talent, great talent, great ideas, and the right kind of money, you can create. You can bake the cake that creates the advantage startup. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the recipe that we use. How does our recipe work? First, starts with the talent. We're going to go and recruit fellows from uh, industry. Large, not ag, maybe, not food, maybe. If we find some talent in ag or food, that's fine, but it's not a prerequisite. You don't have to come from the industry. In fact, for, for each six months when we bring in six new fellows, we don't want the majority of them to be ag and food. We want the majority of them to not be. So what do we want them to be? Technology uh, background, entrepreneur background, having done the been in this startup world before, know how risky this can be, be prepared to be a part of that sort of ecosystem of, of startups mm -hmm. that's a different kind of breed of people. It's not a professor, by the way, they're a different kind of people, right? So, so, so you start by getting those people. You, we, we, the way we do it, we bring them in right away. Uh, at, when we first start engagement with the industry for a six month cycle, our fellows are with us on day one, right? And they're gonna go through the discovery process with us. So what that means is a fellow doesn't come to us with an idea. In fact, we don't, we don't allow it. If they already have an idea for a startup they wanna do for food and ag, we send them somewhere else because we're an open innovation system. So the six fellows come in, the first thing we do is we start engaging with the industry. Yes, you're correct. Most of them are worried about physical stuff, but, but they will host us for three, four hours uh, on, on a visit, show us what they do physically and have a meeting with us to talk about, here's the challenges we have, where if we could just get a digital solution, it would help us, right? So we're gonna spend two weeks with our fellows driving around the United States, seeing these various companies, visiting with them, talking to them, putting our hands on things, having these interesting conversations around the challenges that they have, looking for themes, right? Because you can't create a startup to solve a company's problem. That's not a startup, right? Uh, but if you find a theme where you say, boy, that company, that company, that look at these companies all have the same similar problem. Maybe there's an opportunity in this space. So we're going to we're going to go through that process. 
for two weeks. At the end of that two weeks, we spend three weeks on Zoom calls with various subject matter experts in the industry, faculty members, professors, uh, consultants, uh, uh, people at companies, uh, uh, government entities, and we're, and we're on Zoom calls talking about issues, understanding better what issues are. And at the end of that process, our fellows and our team are going to come up with about 50 different ideas or possibilities of opportunity. We're going to take those opportunities, fleshed out, what's the problem, who's the customer segment, what's the job they're trying to get done, no solution, just define the problem. We're going to bring together a group of industry people, usually about 65 people from across various parts of the industry. They're going to come together, and we have 12 of those 12 of those 40, so 40 or 50 ideas. We've narrowed it down to 12, the 12 we think are the most interesting ones. And we're going to present those to those to this industry group in a, in, a, in a physical setting where we're talked through each one of the 12 in detail, in small groups. Each time the, a mix of industry people are providing input, saying that's a good problem, not a good problem, not a big enough problem. Well, that's the right customer segment. Well, have you talked to this customer group? Hey, I have some contacts. You should be talking to these people. You spend a day doing that. At the end of the day, those industry people then rank those 12 ideas down to six. They say, here's the six best ideas you've got. The next day, we spend about a half a day with them, and we start the process of saying, what might a solution look like? And then we're going to take those six. We're going to spend about three weeks on solutions, getting feedback from customers, Zoom calling people, giving them ideas of what we're talking about. At the end of that uh, three weeks, we're going to have our advisory council. It's going to take a look at these six, uh, all the feedback we've gotten, the concepts we've gotten, and they're going to say, these are the top three. Now our six fellows have the top three ideas. We're going to spend about six weeks building out business models, getting more voice of customer, and ultimately getting uh, potential customers to sign letters of intent that say, hey, we really like the solution you're coming up with. This is a real problem for us. We want to work with you. We would be willing to be your first customers and do a pilot test. And, and then at the end of that period, those three ideas that we have get pitched to our investment committee as potential startup companies. And then our investment committee decides which, if any of those, we'd want to invest in, right? So what I, what I just walked you through was de-risking human talent because our fellows are with us all along the way with the process and getting prepared to, to try to lead these companies. And we're de-risking the idea directly with the industry and the industry's input so that when we get to that pitch of those three companies, we've got the best three ideas vetted with respect to business model that we can come up with. Right. So, of course, you can't make anything unrisky. Right. We still have to have a leap of faith. Hey, if we're going to invest in this company, we know that it's still highly uncertain. Uh, but for us, all the stage gates uh, along the way to take us from 40 ideas to 12 ideas to six ideas to three ideas to one or two of these we might invest in. Those are all part of the de-risking process to get that company to be uh, the ones we invest in to be the ones that have the highest probability of being successful. That's how we do it. Third, thirty but, looks like a very comprehensive process. Can you, can you share well, with us some success stories uh, that uh, that you've had? Yeah, so so I talk, uh, I'm I, I'm getting better and better at this. I talk about this like I'm an old seasoned veteran at doing this. Uh, and we, and I am. We started in February of 2022. <laughs> so Whoa. I've had all of one year of running this program. In that one year we ran the program twice. 
right? We ran our mm-hmm. first pilot in February of 22. That resulted in two companies that we pitched for in June of 22. We invested in one of those. That company is called Croft. That company is focused on digitizing the migrant labor process for farmers in the United States. Farmers in the United States, the only thing you can get out of them most of the time about what's the biggest challenge you have, labor, 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 labor. As you know, migrant labor in the U.S. is a tough thing. The border control, all this sort of stuff in the U.S. is a difficult government-run managed process. Uh, takes a lot of paperwork. This this company's focus is how do we help the farm employer do, uh, make their job easier in managing this labor process with my, with respect to migrant labor, and at the same time helping helping the migrant laborer on the other end uh, make their process of getting through all the paperwork to allow them to come to the United States to work be easier, more seamless, uh, more more transparent, more more. Um, uh, easier to have communications between the parties because it's not just the laborer and the employer. It's also the visa processor, the state government, the federal government. There's so many of these pieces. That so, so that's the company we got the first time. Then we ran a second. Uh, then we ran our first full studio, six fellows. That started in July of 2022. We presented three companies in November. Two of those companies have been invested in. Those two I can't tell you the names of because they're still in stealth mode, but they've both been invested in. One of them is up, uh, has been incorporated now and uh, has its two co-founders in place and is moving ahead with uh, customer interactions. And then the, the last one, we're just, uh, we just hired the, the second co-founder. To, so what we usually do is we have a fellow that goes with our, our company and then we hire an additional co-founder. Well, usually our fellow is gonna be either a technical CTO type or they're a business type, a CEO type, and we're gonna, and then we're gonna hire their counterpart uh, to come in with them. We usually I try to have a CEO and a CTO to start with, and then they build out the rest of the of the uh, of the grouping, right? So, so our success stories: one year we ran this pilot, we ran this program twice, and in one year we were able to create three startup companies that our investment committee, which is the industry. Uh, said these are worthy of of making the investment in to see if the startups will 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 flourish. So so it uh, brings the question. There are two sides. There are some let's say there's fellows. How do you get them? And you know, is there an age limit? Can we join? And uh, the industry that uh, that sponsors it or or, or comes with. Uh, with ideas and what do they get in return? So there are two two topics which actually I think are pretty pretty interesting. So how do you select your fellows, and how do you how do you select or cooperate with with the companies? Because let's say the startup is supposed to connect the two, I guess. Yeah, good question. So uh, so um, we have some magic uh, I think that happens here with, with our um, uh, director of. Uh, entrepreneurial talent, Tim Dixon. You've met him and had a conversation yep, yep. with him. He's our primary recruiter of the talent. Uh, he has really good, strong connections into the tech into the tech industry, which helps pull in the technical side of people. I have a reputation in the industry, so I can help find some ag and food folks usually. Uh, but but I wish I could tell you. Uh, what I can tell you is the outcomes. I'm not sure I can tell you what the inputs were to get us to the outcomes. Right, our outcomes are. 
they were getting about a hundred, uh, uh, 150 people reaching out to Tim saying, I'm interested in this. That's usually converting to about 50 to 60 applicants that he's then weeding down to 18 that we take to our uh, talent committee. Uh, and out of those 18, we do 18 interviews. And uh, out of those 18, we pick the top six. And that's been the pattern for uh, three times now. So so uh, we have a compelling argument somewhere. Tim must have either that or he's kidnapping them. I'm not sure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, in all honesty, here's what I think it is. He, he, he's well tapped into the entrepreneurial uh, uh, landscape. So people who think like this, I think he's well tapped in. That helps, too. Look, uh, when you think about what we do in the studio, I get to be a fellow. You're going to pay me. We do pay a stipend. It's not a lot of money, but it's a little bit of money. So you're going to pay me while you also teach me about an industry I don't know much about. Introduce me to the real people that are in it who are actually maybe willing to help me think about what the solution could be for a company that I could then become a founder of where I own a portion. Okay, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I should release this episode, you know, you will be overflooded, I guess. <laughs> so, 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 you know, that's, I think that's, there's a compelling value proposition. That's why I think we're doing really well there. And Tim's done a really nice job of being able to convey that value proposition to the marketplace. So, so that's that side. What about the company side? Wait, uh, before, before we move to the company side, yeah. uh, what's the, what's the average age of this 18? Uh, ah, hmm. Well, the good news is it's all over the board. So we're apparently not, uh, we're not um, age discriminatory because we've got folks for, <laughs> at, at, at all age groups from, uh, from uh, we've had a couple in our program who've probably been in their mid-20s, early 20s to mid-20s to, to we have uh, one in this program who's probably in his, uh, he's probably uh, three or four years younger than me. So right at 50, 48 to 50, right? So so it goes all over. It goes all over the board with respect to that. There's a couple of things I think are important to note about what we do here. It's not professors. We don't allow that, and it's not current students at Purdue. They could be a graduate. They could be somebody mm -hmm. graduating from Purdue right now in May. We're doing our graduations here. They could be graduating in May, and they might start with us as a, they potentially could start with us as a fellow in um, in July when we start our next one in July. They could theoretically do that. Uh, uh, we haven't, we've done that one time. We've had one student who that's in fact, mm -hmm. what happened was that after the graduation, they became a fellow, but we don't do students. We don't do faculty. Why? Because it's a full-time job. This is the job. You're a fellow, mm -hmm. you're a fellow full-time all the time, all day long. And we expect you to perform well enough that you have a real chance to become a founder. So a professor doesn't get to come through it in six months and then go back to being a professor. That's not what we're trying to do here. Right. So, so it's, it's, so that's the two things. It's not outside of that. Now, we try to be as diverse as we can with respect to backgrounds, with respect to geography, and with and with respect to um, ethnicity. Uh, we have a we try to be really diverse because we know that that's really critical to innovation. You've got to have a diverse yes. set of people who think about things and think about problems in totally different ways, and we've been highly effective. All right. So, what about the 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 the, the, the business that comes to you? Yeah, yeah. So, so why do the companies want to come? To, why do they want to spend time with us? Well, for, first of all, Marion, I'd say two things. We don't ask for a lot of time from any one individual company, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's not a company; it's usually people in the company. That's all you're really interacting with. And if I'm asking a couple of people at uh, uh, CGB Consolidated Grain and Barge, one of our one of our key companies. 
I'm asking two of them to spend uh, one hour on a Zoom call with our, our uh, fellows to help them learn more about the grain industry, it's not a high, it's not, they don't care about the return to that because it's not that high of a cost to them, right? Uh, so, so those are not so hard to do as long as you're not uh, saying, well, we need to call every week for an hour. Mm -hmm. If we're doing that, we got to have some conversations about what are we doing to help you be involved later on. Uh, uh, and then and then uh, how do we get them to come to the industry roundtable? Because now you're traveling in, you're going to spend a day and a half. And what's the value associated with that? Well, it turns out, at least in our industry, and I think it's uh, across a lot of industries, this is an opportunity to network with colleagues who are thinking uh, who are thinking about these innovations. You don't get to spend very much time thinking about very often. But it's not really about me or about Purdue. It's about the fact that there's 65 of them that come together. And we happen to seed the conversation with these 12 ideas. But then they get to take those ideas and, and turn them into what they think they could be. They see that they have influence over that. The other thing that they've told me they see of real value is that we ask them at the end of the day to vote, which are the best six? And they know we, then we actually take those six and those are the ones we're moving forward so they have real influence over what things are we going to be working on. I think that really matters to them. Now, for a, a small handful of them, nine of these companies, they're our investors. And, that, and that, that's where the funds come from. That's where the smart money, I call it smart money, comes from. Each one of those companies is investing money into the studio process. And in, and in the process of that, one, they get more influence. But two, they get to make uh, and they, they, they uh, have an investment. They own 30 percent of each one of these companies. So as those companies become successful, then the returns from that mean they get returns from it. Or and for many of them, this is what they look to us for. That company gets created by the studio. And then in follow on rounds, that's an interesting company to their company. They're like, hey, I'm mm -hmm. going to invest even more in this company because I think it's in, I think it's important for us. So. Uh, so they get that deal flow, if you will, uh, that's important to them because they get to see amongst these 12 companies we'll be creating here. But, hey, that's one I want to invest further. In. So that those are the benefits that come to the industry. So it, it looks like oh, it's, a, it's a yeah, good, good combination, good, good connection all the way through because, you know, the, the business gets essentially their problems solved for them. Uh, the, the, the talent that you're, you're bringing is... Uh, it's 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 interesting that you you mentioned that uh, most most of your talent is coming from outside of uh, food and agri, if I understand correctly, because that that brings the diversity of knowledge, right? The, the exactly and filling that the knowledge gaps that that you require. And you mentioned tech, you mentioned uh, kind of other business uh, business knowledge. Uh, so if people wanted to 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 find out more about about Dial and about the opportunities and you know, we can't stop the, 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 the flood, so let's get it out there. If people wanted to become fellows, uh, <laughs> where, where can they find uh, more information? Yeah, uh, so uh, we're pretty simple, dialventures.com. Uh, uh, anything you want to know about the, the basics of what we do in Dial is at dialventures.com. Uh, certainly, they can follow Dial Ventures on Twitter. Uh, on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is probably our most important uh, social media account. We do a lot of posting uh, there on LinkedIn about what we're doing uh, in each one of our cycles as we go along uh, in LinkedIn. Uh, certainly, they can reach out to me. Uh, I'm very easy to find because my email is gray, G-R-A-Y, at purdue.edu. Marion, that's age-related, by the way. 
if my if it's your last name at your institution, that's how long you've been there. The answer is yes. <laughs> I've been in Purdue so long. They don't need to add my first name. They don't need to add numbers to the end of it. I am the original gray at purdue.edu, which is why my hair looks as gray as it does, because I've been here a long but, time. Right? But funnily enough, my surname is translated to gray. That's the first yeah. thing. And the second one, if we, if we want to, to, to play like that, I have an email, private email, which is my surname.gmail.com. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you were there when Gmail was first created. <laughs> Almost, yes. Uh, it was invitation on. Uh, it was invitation only back then. Invitation only back then. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so those are the ways. Uh, th those are the easy ways to reach us. And then, and then once you once you get to the, those spaces and you're interested more, follow up with me or follow up with Tim uh, or Jared Sutton, who's our other director. He's the director of uh, industry and 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 uh, business development. And and uh, we're easy to find on that on uh, dialventures.com. Uh, obviously, we'll we'll link all that to in the description to the episode, and uh, you know it looks like there's uh, you you've got the, the the pipeline set up. So let's hope that uh, these these three cycles that you 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 you've kind of two that you've managed to if I understand cor correctly to complete, and now that you're running the third one, uh, let's hope they all develop into real innovation and digitization of the of of the food and agri chain. So that uh, we can have a you know a more sustainable, even more sustainable uh, future of forty growing to one hundred and forty to three forty or or whatever. And uh, as always, uh, let's hope it was of use to someone. Thank you for listening. Also, don't miss the next one where we will talk to Ken Ponder, Chief Information Officer at Viscous Companies, about myths around IT capabilities, rules of cooperation between IT and business and about successful change management. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit bdr.show to find out more about future episodes and guests. You can also check out Cognition.llc for more information on Cognition Shared Solutions, our services and other events hosted by us. For now, it's thank you from myself, Artur Guja, and my co-host, your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Sieber. Thank you and goodbye.